Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. Welcome, everyone. My guest today is Matthew Van Fossen, CEO of Absolute Home Mortgage and CEO of Mortgage Automation Technologies. He's also a board member of the Community Home Lenders of America, or CHLA. We're going to talk about some of the pressing issues for lenders in this environment and the CHLA's Consumer Mortgage Bill of Rights. First, here's a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Sarah Wheeler, Editor-in-Chief at HW Media, talking to Desmond Smith, Chief Growth Officer at UWM, about SafeCheck. Desmond, how are trigger leads impacting borrowers? So trigger leads have become a very big issue throughout many industries, not just mortgages, but specifically to mortgages. What we've seen happen is a loan officer or a broker will pull credit and sometime within minutes, but uh, definitely within the hour, uh, we've had consumers receive upwards of 40 calls. You know, within a day or two, they may receive hundreds of calls. So that's the reason that UWM created SafeCheck to protect borrowers. Thanks, Desmond. And listeners, you can find out more about SafeCheck at uwm.com. Matt, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Sarah. Great to have you on here. Um, you know, Community Home Lenders of America, it's been really active over the last several months. I mean, you guys are always um, advocating, but you have done a lot of things lately, and I would love to talk to you specifically about the Consumer Mortgage Bill of Rights. So hope you're up for that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I work very closely with Taylor and Liz on the project. It was uh, it was a lot of fun, and it kind of assembles a lot of the different things that we've been working on uh, over the past two or three years into uh, into a universal document for consumers. So, as you note um, in the press release when you were talking about it, you know the mortgage banking industry is already really regulated. I mean, they it's coming from a lot of different agencies, and um, you know there's just a lot of things they already have to navigate. In your opinion, why do we need even more regulation? Well, it's not necessarily about uh, more regulation. It's more about that there's certain loopholes in consumer regulation right now that I think that, uh, you know, over the past decade, we've seen a concentrated effort for consumer protections. Uh, you know, with the implementation of Dodd-Frank and the SAFE Act, we saw MLO licensing. Uh, we saw the Humda uh, revisions. Um, we saw trade get implemented, right? And it, it was all around the same thing, clarity to consumers, making sure they're not being misled. A lot of the things that we learned in the financial market collapse post-2008 were implemented. But there's some leftover trailing issues that really need to be identified with more modern uh, regulation. And that's really what this Consumer Bill of Rights identifies as saying, well, it's not us asking for more regulation. It's us as, as as, asking the regulators to go look at certain provisions or loopholes that still exist. Um, and I can mention a couple of them if you want to go into some of the, the, the details of it. You know, there's a couple that, co- that are uh, identified in it that come off the top of my head. Well, I, I would say the one that almost everyone could agree on is the very first one, which has to do with trigger leads. So tell us a little bit about that one. Yeah. So, you know, trigger leads has been a big part of our Bill of Rights. It's our, it's our first item we tackled because, uh, you know, myself being a loan originator for 20 years, 
you know, when we get a consumer come in for a pre-qualification for a mortgage, one of the first things you're doing is asking to pull their credit, right? That's going to give you that deep dive. And one of the concerns is, uh, you know, we encourage through TRID and even the regulation through TRID encourages consumers to shop for a mortgage, right? They encourage them to go to multiple locations. But when a consumer's mortgage or a credit is being pulled, what's going on is uh, that data is being resold. Right, that data is being resold from the credit bureaus uh, and turns into a trigger lead, and the practices have now become borderline abusive, uh, where a consumer, after getting their credit pull, is sometimes getting an excess of fifty, sixty, a hundred phone calls from third parties. And you know, when we've monitored these phone calls, some of the information that's being relayed to them is misleading and concerning. Some of them are bad actors; they're they're making it seem like uh, it's their lender calling them back. Hey, just giving you a call back. Talk about your loan terms and fees, right? And trying to concourse them into a new application. Um, and a lot of stuff that we've seen could be misleading or even predatory, right? Some bait and switch tactics to get them in and get them moved over to a different lender. So we're looking for better opt out provisions. Um, and more or less, instead of a uh, opt out beforehand, a general opt out with then a opt in provision. So allowing consumers to opt in to be solicited rather than to have to opt out to not be solicited. Uh, and we think that that would uh, remove a lot of confusion uh, in the initial phases of applying for a mortgage. Yeah, I think that um, that's just such a bad experience for the consumer. You know, they'd go shopping and then they're just inundated for the next, you know, three days <laughs> in a way that makes it, you know, makes them feel badly towards all parties, I think. Yeah. You know, I think when we were talking to some regulators about that, that was our the statement that we encouraged. We said, we encourage you to blindly apply for a mortgage and watch what happens to your cell phone. Uh, and you'll, you'll understand it. Interesting. Well, I think um, your number three here is one that, again, I have, I've heard a lot about, and that's on um, the right to affordable credit report pricing. I feel like I, I was just at an industry event a couple weeks ago and really heard from lenders. You know, they talked about the costs associated with going from three credit reports to two. And just there was a lot of things about that um, decision. And, you know, when you look at FICO and, and some of the uh, pricing that happened over the last year, I mean, this is a real um, touch point, touchy point for people in mortgage, I think. Um, so explain to me what, you know, CHL a there what what your position is there so there's a couple different prongs to it so let's let's take the 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 fico price increase first and then we'll talk a little bit about uh what's going on with buy merge tri merge and vantage because there's actually two different policy issues rolled into one that is important that a guy get identified no secret rates went up over the past you know 18 months consecutively been a very difficult time for midsize uh, large scale uh, mortgage lenders most mortgage lenders are looking ways to cut the industry has gone through a substantial amount of layoffs um, you know not the best of times uh, for the mortgage industry and in the heat of all of this while lenders were trying to normalize uh, and right size their businesses we saw in first quarter a FICO increase uh, they announced a FICO increase of 400 percent. Now, you know, we understand that there's a changing market and that our vendors need to, you know, adjust their price points. But one of the problems that we really saw with it was price parity. Uh, 
that there was three different tiers given to different types of lenders. Uh, and the three tiers were tier one, tier two, and tier three. And tier three seemed to be, I think, somewhere around over 80%. Don't exactly quote me on that. Maybe even higher. I don't know the exact statistics. But the vast majority of lenders, large and mid-scale, were were bucketed into tier three pricing, which was the 400% FICO increase. And then there's a small subset of lenders that qualified for tier two and tier one, which were less nominal increases. Uh, so I think that what CHL is really saying is since these fees directly affect consumers, there should be price parity amongst all lenders uh, when dealing with the credit bureaus that you know one lender due to their size or relationships or whichever uh, aspect that got them the tier one or tier two because uh, that fee directly uh, you know corresponds or translates down to a consumer fee we think that those should be in full parity with one another and there should not be tiered pricing. Uh, that's a reasonable request. And then where that, you know, translates down to is, um, we're looking at FHFA right now and working with them on the buy merge, try merge, and then vantage score. So our credit score modeling system is going to be exponentially changing over the next two to three years. And uh, what they're going to be doing more or less is uh, saying, hey, you don't need three credit scores to deliver a loan. Uh, we're going to reduce that down to a buy merge. So two credit scores merge together. That'll save some money versus a try merge might save, you know, 20, 30 percent on a credit report. But we're, now we're going to factor in this whole other thing called Vantage Score, which takes into um, different aspects of non-traditional trade lines, uh, utilities, rent payments, stuff like that, and factors that into the borrower's credit score. Um, exactly these modelings, though, we're not sure of yet. We haven't seen the modeling as an industry, and that's what CHLE's big ask is right now. We're, we're asking for delays of the process, of the implementation periods of the buy-merge, to tr uh, the try-merge to buy-merge, and then buy-merge to Vantage. Uh, there was a couple industry feedback windows that were opened up um, in May and June. We've asked for those to be extended. Um, we've asked for the rollout plan to um, kind of not necessarily put the cart before the horse. We want to see what these reports look like. We want to run comparison data between our current pipelines and our current borrower sets and our past and new ones. We want to make sure that what's being said on paper with these buy merge and vantage scores and the uh, move over uh, and the changing the backbone of our credit policy and underwriting and how borrowers are evaluated are actually going to do their intention, which is going to help consumers, especially low to moderate income and um, certain demographic groups and geographic areas, actually help them get into loans and make sure that it doesn't do the uh, op uh, opposite of that and, and exclude them from home ownership. So we want more data. More data. I think, you know, one of the goals of uh, CHLA is is really making sure that there's like tiered um, regulatory oversight, tiered when when Washington looks at at different kinds of lenders and they're they're considering how big or uh, what the capital requirements should be for all of that. And, you know, the the Basel three endgame, which we've been reporting on for the last, you know, couple years, but in the last two weeks has taken on this twist, right? Where where it was rumored and then sure enough, it um, calling for increased residential mortgage capital requirements for larger depository banks, which on the one hand, you could think, well, that's a that's a win for your members, maybe, except that it does have some some effect on the warehouse lines of credit, right? So where do you guys come down on on that whole uh, Basel three endgame? 
So, you know, it's, it's, it's a trickle down policy, right? It's, it's difficult because where a CHLA loops in, we, we represent independent mortgage bankers, right? We're not bound by Basel three because most of us are private capital, non-depository institutions, but it also just so happens that most of our warehouse lenders and our counterparty risk does get affected by Basel three. Right. So it's on our radar, right? We are looking at it. We have limited lobbying efforts inside of it, but we're communicating with FHFA on the, on the issues. We're talking to the different regulatory bodies and, you know, we are reminding our regulators that don't forget the, the trickle down, trickle down economic policy of, you know, warehouse lending and making sure that independent mortgage bankers have, um, access to these lines of credit because it's the backbone of the mortgage industry and independent mortgage bankers just so happen to service the large portion of low to moderate income and underserved borrowers that careful about these liquidity requirements. Because if these liquidity requirements are going to start pushing um, large-scale depository institutions out of warehouse lending, then there's a counterparty risk that translates down actually to the consumer, and they have to be aware of that. Well, and I think, you know, we've had, we've seen other industry uh, trade groups and other people in the industry say, you know, what exactly are we trying to, what is that trying to solve? And is that even a problem, right? If we're looking at risk, yes, we had um, this banking crisis, but it was around some really specific kinds of banks with very specific models. And, um, you know, some people are saying, you know, is this secure worse than the disease? You know, what are we trying to solve and what are the, to your point, what are the effects that maybe they're not thinking about? Yeah. And I think that's a great point. You know, it's a big talking point in the industry right now. Uh, the the regulator of 2006 and 2007 would, would dream of the market that we're in right now. I mean, let's face the facts. Mortgage defaults are at historic lows. People are paying their mortgages. The past 10 years, post Dodd-Frank and the QM initiatives largely knocked out the subprime era. I mean, there's been a small, small subset of QM of non-QM lending, but even the non-QM is is very factually based on on ability to repay. So you know the problem of the the, the um, predatory mortgage lending programs, the consumer risk, right? There's a high demand for housing. There's a low default rate. You would think that this is a uh, a dream housing market for a regulator that what they've done in the past has actually worked, uh, and that's what we're kind of saying is like, hey, hey, you know, let's not push more. On this industry, let's let's take a step back because regardless of what's going on in the general economy, when we look at housing, housing is remaining strong, and borrower defaults are remaining low. So there's less systemic risk now. If you're talking about the systemic risk, because we've seen some bank collapses, right, and there's a little bit of you know concern about long-term mortgage-backed securities and how these have been taken down into MSR portfolios, well. That's not because of liquidity as much as when you look at we increased rates at a higher rate than we've ever seen before, right? So, you know, nobody could have predicted or forecasted that when these banks were taking down these MSRs into their portfolios. These are long-term securitizations, right? They didn't think that they'd be devalued exponentially when rates went from 35 to 7% in a 14-month period. And now when the bank needs to create liquidity, what does a bank do? They have to liquidate their MSRs, right? It's one of the easiest ways because it's large-scale, long-term capital, liquidate the MSR. But the MSR is at a different evaluation now because the rates are different. Is that because we're producing bad mortgages? No. Right? Is there further risk inside of the of the independent mortgage 
banker market of the loans that are being manufactured? No, it's actually a direct correlation to the direction of rates and what we've done and what the Fed has done. So, you know, that's what we're trying to say here is, hey, let's not look for an issue where there's not one. Yeah, we get the liquidity requirements. We get Basel III, but it doesn't mean that the loan manufacturing has changed. It doesn't mean that we have to create undue stress risk on the entire backbone of the system, which is warehousing. So we're, we're very in tune in, in trying to pay attention to that warehousing issue. I think that is one of the most interesting things and, you know, could be could be overlooked because it's like, oh, we're not, you know, this doesn't apply to the IMBs. It's like, oh, except mm-hmm. it does, you know, when it looks at- you, You've already seen some warehouse lenders exit, right? There's a couple of companies that, are, that have already exited, um, you know, the market this year because of it. So Matt, the next thing I wanted to ask you about, which is getting tons of buzz, at least um, everywhere I go, is, you know, the issue of buybacks and the fact that it seems that um, Fannie and Freddie are, you know, are being much more precise about those, are being much tougher on those. And every one that they do has a real economic effect, you know, in this environment. So talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah. So let's, let's figure out how do we get here first, right? How do we get to this current climate? Um, you know, the industry has been going through some rough times, as I said earlier, uh, but it came off of the biggest peak that in my 20 years I've ever seen, at least. Um, what goes up must come down, right? We saw record levels of originations from um, mid-2020 into early 2022 before the rate increases started. So when you go look at that, you have to expect that the trailing issues of four or 500% increases in origination is a pairing of four or 500% increases in post-closing QC processes, especially when you look at the rate of manufacturing that these a lot of these lenders, their backs are up against the wall in their underwriting department, right? The staff was getting burnt out. We saw a volume surge and a hiring surge that the industry has never seen. So, you know, when we start looking at the downswing of that, one, they were created a, pa- a backlog at the GSEs, right? The GSEs have QC policy, right? They need to do their QC samplings. I'm sure that they didn't staff up uh, the way the industry didn't staff up and created a backlog. And what that did was extend that QC process out. And a lot of times what's going on now is the GSEs are doing their QC sampling and we're 14, 18 months out from consummation. But that leads to a problem because previously when the GSEs would QC, Right. Let's say they QC, they give you a buyback. Okay. And you have to, you have a decision to either dispute and go through the dispute channels with them. Right. Or you can take the loan back. You can try to refinance it or you can scratch and dent it. Right. There's all these different paths or avenues. When we used to do that in 2017, 2016, 2018, there wasn't a vast difference in rates. Usually you're getting those QC reports three to six months out from the origination. Maybe you put the borrower into a five and a half percent rate and you got to drop it to five and a quarter, take a loss or par the deal out, refinance them, get it off their books, correct the issue that it was. Right Now the problem is you're 18 months out, but you're 18 months out and you're 3% in rates out. So you just can't refinance the borrower out of that issue. Right. So you're seeing a higher dispute. You're seeing a higher volume QC, right? Higher dispute levels. And then when you take it out to the, out of the secondary market, you try to scratch and dent this loan, right? If you can't refinance it because the rate's not there, you can't win a dispute resolution with the GSEs. You're taking that to the scratch and dent market. You're seeing sometimes, you know, 35%, uh, 30% haircuts. You're selling it, you know, 70 cents on the dollar. At a time where again lenders are having, you know, liquidity restraint requirements. So it's it's creating this little perfect storm, 
right? So we're asking for a lot of more robust QC. How do we fix this problem long term? How do we do better post-consummations through the AUS engines? How do we get better data, right? Is day one certainty, the digital mortgage initiatives, is this the solution to it if we can get more data-based mortgage packages? So we're really digging in with FHFA uh, and trying to figure out, okay, what are some of the solutions here? One big solution is we have is, hey, how about we indem rather than repurchase, right? Because a lot of times, Sarah, the, the crazy part about this is these are performing mortgages. They're mortgages that are not in default. They're fully performing. There may be a material error, let's say in the income calculation, let's say in the appraisal, right, of the property that it may not, you know, um, fit that GSE guideline perfectly, but it's still a paying mortgage, right? It's still an on-time, fully consummated mortgage with a borrower that, you know, is in that house and it's a good loan. So, you know, we've asked them to look at, you know, FHA's policies a little bit and look at how the indemnification processes work and being able to structure that. That would be a really easy fix to the problem, we believe. Interesting. You know, so uh, Dave Stevens wrote an op-ed for us um, this week and and his it's an opinion piece, right? And he said, you know, he feels like the GSEs are targeting IMBs on buybacks, which is ironic in his, you know, what he said is like, here IMBs are, are carrying the weight of the mortgage market on their backs right now. It's not depository banks who have who've pulled way back. So you want IMBs to, you know, it. These this is how mortgages are getting done, right? And at the same time, They've also helped Fannie and Freddie have, this is Dave's uh, opinion, have amazing profits uh, at a time when they themselves are really struggling, um, the IMBs. So I, I think in his, in his view, it's like, it's even, it's even beyond just like, you know, you made this decision or, you know, because what uh, Fannie and Freddie have said are like, hey, our, nothing has changed in our policy. We're doing everything exactly the way we did. But even if that's completely true, you're doing it in an environment that is very changed from anyone we've seen, to your point about, you know, that three-point spread and, and the fact that, you know, mortgage rates are just completely crazy right now compared to in a short amount of time. So I'd love to know your uh, opinion on that. Sure. Well, one, you know, I have a lot of respect for Dave Stevens. Um, you know, he's been very outspoken the past couple of years uh, since his residency at, uh, at MBA. And I, I appreciate and, you know, have the utmost respect for his um, you know, taking the forefront of leading the charge for independent mortgage bankers. You know, it's really uh, impressive to see what he's done. But, you know, the key word there is opinion. You know, he's got an opinion. I have an opinion. CHLA has an opinion. Um, you know, and when you ask me what my opinion is, well, I like to, I like to interpret what I actually witness, right? What I see with my own eyes. And, you know, from going into FHFA, from meeting with the director, right? Uh, from looking at their policy objectives, looking at the current administration, what's going on in general in Washington, I don't think that there's a target on IMB's backs. And I'm going to tell you why. Because we serve the underserved. You, When you go look at the data, the vast majority of LMI mortgages are created by IMBs, the vast majority of underserved areas. So I don't think that they're coming in and saying, hey, the IMBs are the real problem here. Let's make it go so all these consumers are going to banks. I don't think that's happening. But what I do think is happening is there's certain mandates that the GSEs being under conservatorship have to follow. And that's being pushed down from FHFA, which is being pushed down from administrative policy, 
and not only the current administration, but previous administrations too. Don't think that this this issue is just on Sandra Thompson's desk. There is a, a carryover from Calabria and Cal- the Calabria FHFA administration, right, that put more capital liquidity requirements in, in place. So when you go look at this, the GSEs have these mandates. The mandates are that loans have to be delivered on with certain guidelines. And I don't want to make it sound like I'm defending the GSEs here, but it's pretty obvious what's going on is that they're following their mandate. They're making sure that they have strength, that the GSEs are strong, that Fannie and Freddie can continue to serve, right? We saw LLPAs go into place. We saw all of this, but to say that there's a target on the back of IMBs, I don't dis- I don't agree with that. I just think that since IMBs have created such a large quantity of the mortgage originations in the marketplace, it just so happens that the GSEs are working more closely with us and we're under a little bit more scrutiny because we've taken such a large share of the market. Well, you know, when you talked about um, looking forward and saying how, what is the solve for this going forward so we don't have the same uh, problem, you know, continuing you know, if the loans are performing, I, I'm not uh, an originator, so I don't, I'm not in the weeds on this, but if you have a loan that's performing, isn't, isn't there um, maybe a different set of rules or more flexibility with that loan? Well, that's what we're, you know, talking about with the indemnification, right? Instead of taking a loan as a full buyback and unloading it for a 30% loss, maybe we can make an agreement where, you know, it'll be a 5% haircut or an indemnification fee. Uh, and then if the loan goes into full default, at that point is what, uh, you know, guarantees the the buyback to occur, and you're taking that loan. So that so that's a, that's a very viable solution right there uh, to fix this issue. I but you you still wind up with the contract, the seller service contract issue, right? When we sell a loan to a GSE, right, we're giving reps and warrants on the file, right, that say that this loan meets a subset of guidelines, and it has been underwritten and credit certified in accordance with those guidelines. If it is found that that loan does not meet those guidelines, that is a contractual issue, right? Which is hard to argue. And one of the issues with these contractual issues when it relates to the directly to the mortgage industry is a lot of mortgage industry stuff is a little gray and is a little bit opinion based, especially when you get into credit underwriting. You know, sometimes even within the same company, you'll see different underwriters take different opinions on side and there's great debate over a, a, a guideline and, and how it's met. It's not black and white. There's a lot of gray. So that's what makes the conversation, uh, you know, extremely difficult and, and very complex and why it's one of the largest debated topics right now, because, uh, it is affecting capital. It's, it's, putting financial strain. And, you know, I'd say the GSEs are between a rock and a hard place because they have to answer to their regulator. Um, and they also have to, you know, be able to make sure that seller servicers are so strong. So walk me through, um, besides the things that we've already talked through between here and the end of the year, what are CHLA priorities? What are their top priorities? Yeah, so CHLA top priorities. Uh, we're we're taking up several initiatives um, that are really our core focus, right? So one is that FICO, right? Uh, FICO parity um, and price parity is big. Uh, to the extension of with working with FHFA, trying to get an extension on these implementation periods for the Vantage and buy merge rollout. Three is those trigger those uh, trigger leads, right? We we definitely want to see those trigger leads go go through. 
Um, we're going to see what's going on with the ICE initiatives, right? Uh, as you said, there's a lot of current events with that, but I know CHLA was uh, pretty involved in, in those as well. And then we're taking a, a, on a couple of different things that we're going to try to put back on the table, things like MLO compensation, right? We want to get that on the CFPB's radar. We were very close under Craringer to getting it on the on the roadmap and getting it on uh, to the agenda, if you will. But now with with a leadership change, uh, you know, we're trying to get it back on there. But we're we're seeing what uh, you know the tolerance is, is for that. But. You know, we've been working on this one initiative for several years. Uh, that's uh, r- really about the um, safe act, act testing, right? That we said, hey, uh, you know, IMB loan officers are required to take that safe act test, right? And we agree with that. We think that it did a lot of cleanup in the industry, but the banks aren't. Uh, the banks, uh, bank employees are not. And where we're now bringing that back around is this whole other issue of dual compensation. Uh, and it's becoming one of our primary initiatives right now. Uh, last December, FHA released a mortgagee letter that said that dual compensation relating to real estate agents, where a real estate agent on an FHA loan with proper disclosure can receive compensation as the loan officer or real estate agent at the same time. So we looked at that and we said, okay, well, how does this carry over to this consumer bill of rights that we worked on? And where are the consumer loopholes in this? If it's now the what was referred to as the proxy right? Because it used to be, okay, FHA was thought that did not allow that. FHA then came and said, hey, look, we're just like the GSEs. GSEs allow it. We're going to allow it. But now it lifted this general proxy that kept a lot of lenders out of it. So now when you look at this, we're, t- we're tying it to our other issues. We're tying it to MLO comp. We're tying it to the Safe Act licensing issue because what we don't want to see is a couple of things. One, we don't believe that a seller, a listing agent, right? Should be able to represent the buyer's mortgage transaction. So if you're you're a listing agent, right, and you have a house for sale, and your objective is to represent the seller of the house, we don't think you should be previewed to the buyer's mortgage information. You shouldn't be able to see the max qualifying parameters, the maximum ability they can afford, the cash in the bank, the information that the loan officer is previewed to. There's no regulatory stipulation right now that that would prevent a listing agent from being able to represent a buyer's mortgage. And then where that kind of ties in, okay, to dual comp, right, and getting uh, paid on both sides uh, of the transaction is there's also no regulatory requirement if a real estate agent went and worked for a bank that there's a barrier of entry. So what we're trying to say is if you're going to leverage dual comp, if you're going to be on both sides of a transaction, you're going to be on the real estate side and the mortgage side, you need to pass that safe act test, right? And these are two stipulations we put in for consumer protections, right? And we think that's fair. That the seller, the listing agent shouldn't be previewed to max affordability of a buyer. And that if that listing agent or that buyer's agent is going to represent somebody for the mortgage, that there should be a minimum barrier of entry other than internal testing and education requirements at a bank, that they should be at least have to pass the SAFE Act tests and they shouldn't be under the federal registrant exemption provision of registered MLOs in the industry that a realtor can go work for a bank and then all of a sudden start doing mortgages. Thanks for walking us through that. You know, so you have on this homeowner's bill of rights, you really have a lot of different, you know, you're asking the FTC for some things, the CFPB, um, FHA, just different things. What are, from your perspective, what are the chances of these things being adopted? Um, What do you think your chances are of of seeing progress on these this year? Well, you know, it's interesting, right? Uh, I think the answer to that is advocacy and action. 
does it work? Does it not work? And this is not something that's like a light switch, right? You can see a direct result in it. Uh, it it's much different. Than this is uh, the long game, if you will, right? And uh, the DTI-based LLPA issue uh, that was in the first half of this year is a perfect example of that, right? Uh, we went through the second home DTI adjustments the year before. We got a temporary um, um, temporary stay on it. Uh, it was one of Sandra Thomas's first actions that we uh, worked with her on uh, at FHFA. And now, uh, you know, in light of uh, the DTI-based LLPAs, we went into FHFA. Uh, mo- a lot, and we weren't the only ones. MBA worked on this as well. Other industry trade groups worked on this. I'm not saying we're taking credit for it at CHLA, but we met with uh, FHFA on it. And, you know, we brought through the light of, hey, look, look what's going on at the CFPB. Look at what TRID calls for in this. Do you think it would be good for a consumer that is, has a borderline DTI to potentially have their rate fluctuate three or four times, potentially more throughout the transaction, which would then cause uh, you know, numerous redisclosures for us to be you know, in compliance with TRID? Uh, we think that's misleading. We think it would confuse consumers. We don't think it's good. right? And we really took the charge on those DTI-based LLPA issues, and we got it done. Right, and I'm not saying we're taking credit for it. We were part of the the overall machine, but that's how this advocacy in action works. So what you have to do is you have to one lay out what your stance is. Right, create your policy initiatives, get your constituents to agree, articulate them properly, and then show how they all roll together. And if you visit the CHLA website, I think you can really see that. You can see that over the past two or three years, we have been you know, every other week fighting for a different issue, but they all tie together. And you have to make sure that you're in the regulator's offices. We have regular meetings with CFPB. We have regular meetings with uh, with FHFA, right? We have regular meetings with FHA and we're talking to the policy administrators. And what we're generally doing is raising awareness, right? We're not going to get everything done. It's impossible. That's not how Washington works. If you ask for 10 things and you get one thing, that's great, right? That's great because that means that they're listening and that's what you have to do is you have to educate, be in their face, showing them what's going on and showing them that the policies that are being discussed and the policies that are being acted on, how does that actually relate to consumers and how can that actually have unintended consequences? And as long as we stay on that path, then I think we're going to accomplish a lot of things. I mean, we're not going to get everything because y- you can't. But generating that awareness is key. I think those are really good points. I think the LLPA um, changes made their way into the popular mainstream media in a way that fired up. I, f- I feel like, uh, you know, maybe those in Washington were feeling the heat from a lot of different perspectives. But it was also a, a great example of different um, industry groups working together. So I don't want to take anything away from that because I do think that's a great example going forward of like, hey, this worked. I just also think in that particular case, you had you had just a wide swath of, of the public that was kind of throwing a fit too. Well, that's what you got to look at, right? Is what, what happens when you start asking for everything, right? Because if the mainstream media, in essence, gets a hold of something, right? There can be, you know, a little bit of skewed stuff. And this goes back to the mandates, FHFA, the liquidity requirements, it goes back to everything. They needed these LLPAs, right? And there there were certain initiatives that were being going on where they could figure it out, okay, how to how to do this, how to actually get 
better liquidity, how to implement these LLPAs, how to make sure that it wasn't impacting underserved borrowers exponentially more than, uh, you know, other borrower subsets. And, uh, you know, we, certain groups went for an all out elimination of all LLPAs, right? And CHLA, I think, you know, kind of said, okay, that's not reasonable. That's not going to happen, right? That's, that's a fairy tale. They have, we understand they have to do something. So where can we get a win? And we really stayed true. If you go back and you look over the past six months, that when a lot of when when it hit the mainstream media and everybody was calling for the total wipeout of LLPAs across the board, we said, hey, we really think that the DTI one is the one we can get a win on because that's the one that causes the most amount of operational concerns at a lender, at an IMB, because you're talking about the lock desk, the disclosure desk, the underwriting department, retraining, policy, procedure, right? All of that was factored into that DTI-based LLPA, and we really stayed true on let's keep asking for just this one carve-out because that's the one we think we can get the win on. Matt, thank you so much for being on. Very informative, and we will keep watching to see which of these initiatives go through, and just thanks for being on. Thanks, Sarah. It's great. Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to take a minute to rate the show and leave a comment. And make sure to tune in tomorrow for more news and insight.